Over the past three weeks, we've been taking some time to look closely at the Bible, and we've considered issues uh, such as divine inspiration, what it means that the scriptures are God-breathed. We've talked about things like oral transmission and canonization, and if any of those are words that you are unfamiliar with, I invite you to go back and review the last few weeks of sermons through this series. Uh, last week, we asked the question that, you know, given the presence of, of variants among the many thousands of manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament that are in existence today, uh, the question is, is the Greek New Testament that we have, that your English Bible was based upon, is it accurate to the original autographs? And the answer, of course, uh, thanks to textual criticism, is a resounding yes. But the question for this morning is, um, we know what the biblical authors said, but can they be trusted? Especially those that say that Jesus died and rose again. That's the question here today. After all, that claim that Jesus died and rose again, both of those are, are what's at stake here. Not just that a man died or even that a good man died, but that a God-man died and then came back to life. That is central to everything that the New Testament writers thought and believed and preached and wrote. That issue that Jesus died and rose again is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is the crux on which everything that you and I believe hangs. And so we have this quote here from Greg Gilbert in Why Trust the Bible where he says, here's the thing you can't get around. If the resurrection happened, then the rest of the fundamental superstructure of Christianity comes together like clockwork, including the authority of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament and Old. And if it didn't happen, here's the implication, then never mind any of it. And I hope you connect the dots there. If Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, then you and I are wasting our time here this morning. And I think Paul shared that same sentiment. He staked everything that he did, everything he said, everything he preached, everything he wrote upon the historicity of the resurrection because he understood just like in the Old Testament, the history is everything. The facts and the details mattered. And if you lose the history in the Old Testament, the same is true with Jesus in the New. If you lose the history, you lose the salvation. And so it, it is of utmost importance. And so that brings us to our sermon text here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, but of course it's going to be on the screen here. And I'm going to do my very best to read this and click at the right time, so bear with me if I get ahead or behind myself here. You've been very gracious the last few weeks as, I've, um, as you've suffered with me through the clicking of this little device here. I'm going to do my best to, to keep up. Uh, but let's take a look here at 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to take some selections from uh, verses 1 through 9 and then 12 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James 
and later by all the apostles. That's James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, and later all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying, would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are all still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. I want to begin this morning in, in our investigation into the, what Paul is saying here and in the larger uh, emphasis of the New Testament on the, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by identifying some basic features of the resurrection of Jesus. First, it, is a, it was a bodily resurrection. There are some today, skeptics in the world, who would try to undermine the authority of the scriptures and, and by virtue of that undermine the faith that you have by trying to say that, well, you know, the, the early believers believed that Jesus rose just in a spiritual sense from the dead. He didn't actually rise physically from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection. Well, if you're at all acquainted with the New Testament, you know that it goes out of its way to affirm that Jesus' resurrection was a physical spiritual event. It wasn't just some spiritual or symbolic thing that happened, some sort of, you know, metaphor or, or idea. We, we believe that a man, just as much a man as you and I, actually died and then actually came back to life. And though it was a glorified body, the body of the resurrected Jesus was a real physical body. And you go to passages like Luke 24 and, and you see that, you know, because he was glorified and he's the Lord over all and, and he exists now in a, a different manner than you and I now exist, but one day will exist, he, could, he wasn't limited by walls and locks and doors. They, the, the, the disciples were in an upper room and they were, they were hiding and they were fearful and yet Jesus appears in their midst and we're, we're blown away by this. How could he just show up like that? And yet he goes out of his way to show that Though he is not limited by things like you and I are limited, he still very much is a, is a physical, spiritual being. He could still eat food. He shows up and says, hey, do you guys have anything to eat? And he shows them right there on the spot that he had a body just like, but even more so than they. And Jesus knew what they would think when they saw him. So he, he let them touch him. Luke 24, 39, he says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. They think he's a ghost because dead men don't come back to life. But he says, look, look at me. I have hands. I have feet. You can see that it's really me. It's not just an idea of me. It's not someone impersonating me. It is really me. And you can see and touch and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. It could not be more clear 
This is not just some sort of spiritual thing that the disciples later changed to mean something else. This is what was written originally. This is what they believed originally. This is what happened originally. The man came back from the dead. He showed up. They thought he was a ghost. He allowed them to touch him, and then he ate something in their midst to show that it was really him back from the grave. So the resurrection at first was a bodily resurrection. Secondly, the resurrection was a public resurrection. He didn't just appear to one or two people privately, and you had to just listen to their account and trust what they said. No, we're told in in Acts that over a period of 40 days, so over a month, Jesus was appearing to a multitude of people, sometimes up to 500 people at one time, Paul tells us, in the passage that we just read a moment ago. It was a, a sustained repeated event of the resurrected Jesus appearing and disclosing himself and making himself known and giving them convincing proofs that it was actually him, that he had indeed risen from the dead as the scriptures had foretold, as he himself had told them. And even though the scriptures and Jesus both told the disciples that he would come back from the grave, none of them expected or believed it, and yet there he was. And he took all this time in a variety of ways to make himself observable, to the five senses. It was actually him. And there were witnesses that saw it. And, they, and, and the people were still alive at the time that these things were written down and, and then widely spread. The, the reports could have been verified very easily. The, this, uh, this book right here, 1 Corinthians uh, itself, was, was written within about 30 years of the resurrection. So people were still around. They were still alive. And they could be interviewed. And thirdly, of course, third feature of Jesus' resurrection is that it was the first fruit or the pattern, if you want to say that, of our own, meaning it's the first of more to come. It was unprecedented in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing like it. And you might say, well, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Well, it is true. Lazarus had died, but Lazarus was not resurrected like this. You might say Lazarus was resuscitated. You know, maybe whatever you want to call it, yes, he came back to life, and Jesus brought him back to life to, to prove something about himself, but Lazarus went on to die. Lazarus didn't have a, the type of, of glorified, you know, physical, spiritual reality that Jesus now has. Lazarus didn't just appear in rooms be, <laughs> behind locked doors, and, and he doesn't live forever to have ever, forever overcome death. No, Jesus brought this man back to life to point to his own resurrection, which transcends even what happened to Lazarus. It is the first of its kind, and yet you and I can count on many more to come, including your own resurrection and mine. One day you and I, if Jesus doesn't come back before then, will die. Real people experiencing real death, but that won't be the end for you. If your hope is in Christ, if your life is hid with with Christ in God, if he is your life, you too will live. That's exactly what Jesus promised. His resurrection is the pattern and the guarantee of your resurrection and mine. Jesus himself, John 11. I am resurrection in life. I am the resurrection. If you have any hope of resurrection, it's your hope is going to be in me. And if you want to live again, if you want to live today, you put your hope in me. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And because he lives, John will continue in his first, first epistle, we will live like him, and we will be like him. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of a great harvest of many more to come. These have been the essential Orthodox Christian convictions from the very beginning. 
But as you all know, there have been many objections to these claims that have popped up over the centuries. And we're going to take a few minutes this morning and respond to some of the more common ones that you might come across. Perhaps this is, perhaps this is old news for all of you. Perhaps you've gone through this exercise before. You've read, you've read the books. You've debated the skeptics. And, and this is just you know, nothing new under the sun here for you. And that's, that's fine. But I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's some of you here this morning who need this type of reassurance of the things you believe. And you want this equipping as you go out into the world and you, you want to be you want to be honest with the world about what you believe, and you want to be prepared to explain why. And I hope this gives you a little bit of that this morning. What are some of the objections that you are going to find to the resurrection out there in the world? Well, the first is that the resurrection narratives of the Gospels are, are things that developed a long time after the supposed events occurred. This is idea that, that we don't necessarily have what the original people wrote or what the original people said and even believed. No, this is some sort of tradition this is something that developed over a, a course of, of, of decades and perhaps even centuries. Centuries later, you know, people got together and decided, oh, we need to make sure that everyone thinks Jesus is actually God because if they believe he's actually God, then they'll do what we tell them to do. That's the, that's the argument. Well, you and I know that's not the case. That's just bad history. And we talked about this last week, that the first recorded resurrection accounts come from within the first 15 or 20 years of the event itself. This wasn't the, the result of a long period of, of, you know, of, of evolution of, of an idea, some sort of tradition that, that popped up and was given you know, uh, credence and authority by a, a small group of power brokers. No, this is what they were originally preaching, what they originally believed, and what they originally wrote down. And you and I can think things like textual criticism to, to, to have confidence that when you open the Bible, this is what was actually written immediately. In the first generation, this is what they said and believed. It's not just a tradition. Furthermore, Paul's letters were public documents. They weren't something that he wrote down. It wasn't like his private journal that he wrote down and he tucked away in a box. And, and it wasn't until everyone had died, sometime later, when it was safe to open the box, that people then read it, but then no one could verify what he wrote. It's not the case at all. Paul's letters were public documents, they were read aloud, they were widely distributed, and it was during the time in which eyewitnesses were still alive, and anybody could have gone and investigated the claims and proved them wrong. Anybody could have done it. But not a single person in Jerusalem was able to refute the claims. And not a single person in Jerusalem would have believed Paul if the grave wasn't empty. Because after all, they, all they had to do was just stroll down the, the, the street to where the, the location of the burial was and produce a body. That ends it all right there, doesn't it? That's, that's, all you got to do is sh- show the corpse, present the corpse of, of their dead Messiah, and everyone is silent from that point on. But that didn't happen. Furthermore, the resurrection accounts in the Gospels are too problematic to have been fabrications. Let me give you an example. Who were the first people to discover that Jesus' tomb was empty? Now, think hard, because it wasn't the, the usual suspects that you might think of. It was not Peter. It wasn't, it wasn't John. It wasn't James, the brother of Jesus, the one who ended up, from what we can tell, seemed to be the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem after, after a, a number of, of months and years had transpired. No, it wasn't any of those, those great leaders, those, those names that you always think of when you think of, of the early church, know it was whom? It was the women. <laughs> yeah, girl power. 
the Bible was more woke than you thought it was. <laughs> Actually, it's not, so. It was the women, people who had, in that day, no real social or legal status of any kind. So here's the question. If the Gospels were fabrications, why in the world would they have ever said that it was women who discovered the body first? They wouldn't have done it. They never would have done it. There's too many problems. There's no benefit to the, to the early church to that, to that claim unless it was actually what happened. And I bet there was tremendous early pressure for the gospel writers to amend their message, to make it that, well, it was Peter that got there first. He was the first eyewitness. And so he's the leader. He's the one we should listen to. His testimony is valid because he's a man. And there were other men there, and they can all verify each other's reports. That's not what happened. And I bet the early gospel writers received all sorts of pressure to change that, but they didn't because of their commitment to the actual history of what happened. So that shouldn't be something that undermines, the the, the problems of the account should not be something that undermines or causes us to doubt. It should be something that gives us confidence that what they report is what actually happened. Because that makes no sense otherwise. The historical reality of the resurrection is the only thing that can account for the explosion of a whole new worldview upon the scene. An entire Christian community suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new and until that time were utterly unthinkable. The Christian worldview, absolutely unprecedented in all of human history, sprang up full-blown immediately. Even if just a handful of believers came up with this idea on their own, they would never have been able to convince a movement of other Jews to follow them unless there were multiple, inexplicable, plausible, repeated encounters with the resurrected Jesus. It wasn't just their claims. It was their claims, plus an empty tomb, plus multiple sightings of a variety of people. It was all of that taken together. Only that can account for this worldview that exploded upon the scene. Yes, the Jews believed in a single transcendent personal God, and because of that, it was blasphemous for them to propose that a human being could be worshipped, and yet, overnight, thousands of Jews began to worship Jesus Christ as God and Lord. How do you explain that, apart from the historicity of the resurrection? Secondly, how do you explain the changed lives of the disciples? You know exactly what those guys were like the the night and the days that followed uh, after Jesus was crucified. Their great leader was gone. They were scattered like cockroaches when the light turns on. They were all hiding and fearful, and none of them had the the boldness to stand up and claim that that he was coming back from the dead. They didn't even believe it. It never crossed their minds. They were scattered and dejected and mourning his death, and yet within days, they had become people, as Acts says in chapter 15, verse 26, who risked their lives for the name of Jesus. Why would they do that? How could they have become, as it says in Acts 17, 6, people who turned the world upside down? doesn't sound like the type of people that would do that on the night of his crucifixion. Perhaps the most compelling is this question. Who would die knowingly for a lie? It's true, there, were, there are lots of people in the world today who, who will die for what they believe to be true. People die for lies all the time. But who would die for a lie that they know was a lie? I don't know anyone who would do that. I sure wouldn't do that. 
What would I stand to gain? I, I could save my life if I would just point out that what I was saying was not true. And yet none of the, the, the apostles, none of the early followers of Jesus, not one of them, renounced their faith. Not one. And they maintained their testimony to the bitter end. And by the way, every one of their ends was bitter. History will tell you that every single of the, one of the apostles died a horrific, gruesome, painful, miserable death. They were tortured, they were crucified, they were stoned, they were clubbed, they were burned and boiled. And yet not one of them renounced their testimony. Not one. Who would knowingly die for a lie? None of them would, and none of them did. They died for what they knew was true. Second objection to the historicity of the resurrection is what's called the swoon theory. You may have heard this one before. This is the idea that, that the, Jesus just appeared to be dead. He wasn't actually dead. He appeared dead, and so that's the only thing that can account for what appeared to be a resurrection. That the, the, the Jesus that was appearing to people was, you know, the Jesus that never really died on the cross. You know, somehow he was able to, to you know, pull the wool over the eyes of everybody and, and deceive them. And, and, and all the, re- the eyewitness accounts were just uh, the, the Jesus that was uh, everyone knew before you know, the crucifixion moment. The problem with that is, of course, is that the evidence of his death was, was more than obvious and more than sufficient, even to satisfy the enemies of Jesus. The centurion's report, of course, in Mark chapter 15, to Pilate was what? That he was dead. And I'm pretty sure a centurion knows death when he sees it. There's few um, regimes in the history of the world who were more expertly skilled at killing people than the Romans. They knew exactly what they were doing. Take, take John 19, for example, verse 33, when it says they went to break the legs of Jesus to speed up the crucifixion process because, of course, uh, crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. As you're hanging there, you got the full weight of your body is putting pressure on your chest and your diaphragm and your lungs. And, and the, the weakened individual over enough time, they don't die of starvation. They don't die of dehydration. They die of, of basically, they can't breathe. And the only way they can keep themselves alive long enough is to use whatever support they can with their legs. Okay, so if you can use whatever strength you have in your legs to hold yourself up, perhaps you can get a breath and, and live a little bit longer. And the crucifixion was designed not just to kill but to, but to kill after torture. You will suffer as long as we can keep you alive until you finally die. And in the case of Jesus, they had to speed up the process because of, of the ceremonies and the rituals and the holy days that were coming up. They didn't want the bodies up there. So the Romans went to break the legs of the, of the men that were crucified and they came to Jesus and of course found what? He was already dead. There was no need to break his legs because the process had already been completed. They were expert executioners. The Romans knew what they were doing. And of course, who can forget the account there in the next verse where it says, just to be sure, a spear was jammed up into his side. And of course, what happens when the spear goes into his side? We're told that blood and water come out. What does that indicate? Well, for you medical people out there, you know that's what's called pericardial effusion, which is due to a thing called Hypovolemic shock. What are those things? Well, hypovolemic shock is what happens when you lose too much blood. If you lose too much blood, the heart starts pumping to try to account for the the lack of pressure. And the result of that is extreme fatigue, uh, extreme dehydration. What do we know about Jesus as he's making his way to the cross? He can't carry the cross. He's already 
from the, the, the lashings and the torture that he experienced up to that point, had already lost enough blood. His, he was so diminished, he couldn't even carry his own cross. And what does he say when he's hanging from the cross? I'm thirsty. I need something to drink. He's dehydrated. He's, he's in the process of dying. And, and as the spear is jabbed into his side, blood and water come out because one of the extreme uh, results of, of pericardial effusion is water or fluid developing around in the membrane around the heart. And so here's a man who's, who has been utterly devastated physically. And it's indicated by all the, the eyewitness accounts that, that we see recorded in the scriptures. No one could have survived this condition. No one could have survived it, let alone somehow, you know, emerge in such a way that he could deceive everybody that he had triumphantly, you know, been victorious over death in the grave. He couldn't have deceived anybody. He couldn't have emerged in such a way as to convince people that he had been raised from the dead. How could it have happened? There's no way possible, and you know that, and so do I. The Romans knew what they were doing, and everybody knew what had happened. That's why Joseph of Arimathea petitioned Pilate to do what? He wanted the body. He wanted the corpse, and he went through a very complex burial ritual before he was placed in a tomb. A tomb, by the way, no one was going in, and no one was coming out. Look at Matthew chapter 27. It says, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate, and they told him, sir, we remember that what that deceiver once said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming out and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. And so they, they sealed the tomb, Pilate sealed the tomb, and they made sure that no one was going in or coming out. Who could have overcome the guards? Who could have done it? Who, could have, who would defy Rome by breaking the seal? And even if they were able to overcome the guards and break the seal and, re and recover this person that people thought was dead but wasn't really dead, was he in any condition to come out and do anything of significance? He couldn't have broken his way out. And we know that the women in the, this ragtag group of, of terrified and powerless fishermen couldn't have pulled off such a heist if the body was dead and they went to steal it, which, by the way, is objection number three. Oh, that's the end of the verse there. Pilate said, take guards, secure it the best you can, and so they sealed the tomb and posted guards. So he wasn't coming out. They weren't breaking him out. And no one was, go thirdly, going to steal the body and then trick everybody that he had risen from the dead. Because it begs the question, if someone stole the body of Jesus, who was it? Who was going to do it? Was it the disciples? Well, how? <laughs> how could they have done it? Was it the, 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 the Jewish or Roman officials? Well, why? Why would they have done it? No one could have or would have stolen the body, and it is not true that the disciples were just seeing things when they, when they saw Jesus because they sincerely expected him to rise again. There's no indication that anyone was expecting to ever see Jesus again raised from the, the dead. The fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of the early Christian belief, not an objection to it. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. It was something new to them altogether. Even though he had predicted it, they clearly didn't believe it. Because remember, the view of, of, of first century Jews who believed in resurrection was not that it was, a, like I said a moment ago, a private event reserved for an individual 
in time. No, resurrection universally in Jewish thought was a general event reserved for the end of time. No one expected anyone ever to come back from the dead once they died. They believed in resurrection, but not resurrection like that. No one expected it. No one was waiting around holding a a vigil outside the tomb, just waiting for their triumphant Messiah to come back from the grave. That wasn't the account at all. There was no one there. In fact, the only women that showed up there in Matthew 28, they were there to continue the burial rites. And we're told in Mark 16 that after not finding what they were expecting, they fled the tomb trembling and bewildered. Doesn't sound like people who found what they were looking for, does it? Trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Even after the other disciples claimed to have seen Jesus, we know Thomas's famous refusal to believe when he says there in John 20, 25, after they, says we, they say, we have seen the Lord, he replied, I will not believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my finger into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. No one, not even his closest followers, expected to see Jesus again. No one tried to steal or take his body away. Every single one of them struggled to make sense of what they saw and what they heard, to believe their reports, and claiming that their leader was alive again would have never crossed their minds unless, of course, he had actually come back from the dead. Now look, I know I'm the pastor and I'm supposed to say and believe all these things and, and yet I want you to know I'm no different than you. I too have times where I have struggled to believe what I believe. I've had times where I've doubted. I've had times where I've thought to myself, what if all the things that I, I, I think I believe and all the things that I tell people to believe, all these things that I've built my whole life upon, what if they weren't true? It's not, it's not uncommon to have that type of thought from time to time. What, what if I've thought, if, what if the people who don't believe are actually right? What if the people who are living a totally different life, pursuing totally different things, and seem to be enjoying themselves in it, what if they're actually right and I've wasted all of my time and all of my effort and made all of these sacrifices for nothing? Well, it's in times like that that I need to be reminded of these things. I need to be reminded. I need to remember the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus for the Christian is more than just a religious belief. It is an historical event. One that is more fully attested to than most other events in ancient history that you and I take for granted. And the truth of the matter is, if the resurrection didn't happen, then how do you answer some of these questions? How did Christianity emerge so rapidly and with such power? No other band of Messianic followers in that era era concluded their leader was raised from the dead. So why did this group do that? And why did they worship a human when no other Jewish group ever worshipped a human being? Jews did not believe in divine men. They did not believe in individual resurrections. So what changed their worldview, literally? Literally, not figuratively. Literally overnight. If Jesus was not raised from the dead then where is his body? And how do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades, publicly maintaining their testimonies, 
eventually giving up their lives for their belief? Those are some real questions that I invite you to ask the skeptic. How do you explain it? I would say, in light of the evidence, it takes more faith to reject the resurrection than to accept it. Because when you, when you boil right down to the heart of things, as you're debating people who are offering these objections and offering these arguments, and you have very solid responses to them, at the end of the day, they will always res- resort to just saying, well, it just couldn't happen. And that statement, it just couldn't happen, is not a scientific statement. It is not a historical statement. That is a philosophical, religious assumption. It is a faith system. It is a faith that says the divine or the supernatural does not or cannot exist. And that is a religious commitment. So it's not faith versus science or faith versus history. It is faith versus faith. And science versus science and history versus history. That That is what the situation is as it really is. And you and I know that what we believe is not just a belief. It's what actually happened, and that's why we believe it. It's not, the other, it's not we believe it and then we hope it happened. It's we know it happened, and that's why we believe it. That's why we put our trust in it. That's why we put our faith in it. That's why we're not living the sort of life that everyone else seems to be living. That's why we're making sacrifices and denying ourselves and loving one another and serving our neighbors and worshiping God and giving our tithes and going out on service projects when we receive nothing ourselves in return. We do it because we know what the truth is. And we're not living for the things of this world. We're living for the world to come. We're not storing up treasures for ourselves here. Treasures, treasures that will decay and rust and deteriorate. Things that you cannot take with you when you die. No, we store up treasures in heaven. That is what it's all about. Not for this life, but for the life to come. If the resurrection did happen, then it's not so much a stretch at all to accept everything else that the Bible has to say. Everything else. I have absolutely no trouble whatsoever believing that God created the world by speaking into existence in just a matter of days. Because if Jesus died and rose again, well, that's all the, the, the proof that I need to trust all the rest of the scriptures. Jesus himself insisted to the, to the doubters of his day that his coming resurrection would vindicate everything he ever said. Look at what he says here. Look what uh, Matthew 12 says here, verses 38 to 40. It says, one day some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. In other words, Jesus, we hear the things you're teaching. We hear the things you're saying. We hear your interpretation of the scriptures but we need some sort of proof that what you say is true. Prove it to us, Jesus. And then the implication is, well, you know, then we'll believe you. Then we'll follow you. Whatever. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. They have the scriptures already. That's his point. You have what is sufficient to vindicate everything that I've said about myself. And only an evil, wicked generation such as you would demand something more. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you see what he's saying to them? 
Jesus is saying the ultimate and only proof that you will get, that he will give to his skeptics or really to anybody, that he was who he said he was and that he could be trusted and that everything he said was true would be his death and resurrection. The resurrection, therefore, vindicates every word out of the mouth of Jesus. And by extension, every single word in the Holy Bible is vindicated by the historical event of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like how Tim Keller puts the, the, the implications together for us here. It's sort of like the quote from uh, Gilbert in the beginning. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? <laughs> the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Church, I want you to be encouraged. The case for what you and I believe is sound and logical and historical. And if Jesus really, truly rose from the dead, then the answer to the question, can the Bible be trusted, is a resounding yes. Because the one who conquered the grave endorsed the Old Testament and authorized the new. For you and for me, trusting our Bibles is not some unthinking, close your eyes and take a jump, leap of faith kind of thing. We're just, we're just hoping that in the end it's true. We're just, we're, it's a wish and a prayer. We think it's true. We, we hope it's true. We're, we're not entirely sure that it's true. And so we're going to live this, we're sort of hedge our bets and live a certain way just in case it is true at the end. No, that's not the case at all. The, the, what you and I believe, trusting God's word, is a considered conclusion that is built from a careful investigation that stands up to the harshest of scrutiny. We can trust the Bible. And not just because it stands up to scrutiny, but because the author of the Bible, the source of the Bible, the one who, who breathed its words, the inspiration behind it all has proven himself time and time again all throughout the history of the world and all throughout the history of your lives to be faithful and true. Sound reason and scholarship may show that God has spoken and acted in history, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is faith that trusts and obeys the God who spoke the universe into existence and continues to speak through his word to your heart and to my heart. None of us were there. No one was alive. We didn't witness it ourselves. And so you can't prove in that sense, anything. But you and I can prove to the world and to ourselves the truth of what we believe when we live it out in faith. Just follow the, 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 the words of this book for a day, truly, and you'll have all the proof you need that what they say are true, that what it says can be relied upon, that it is trustworthy, that it is as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 160, the very essence of your words is truth. The good book is his word. All of it inspired, without error in everything that it affirms. Every bit of it true, and you can count on it with every bit of your life. And, I, and that is my prayer, that that is what you're doing today. That you're building your life upon his word. Let's go to prayer.
Lord, we thank you that we don't um, just have a set of religious beliefs or a tradition that we, that we are putting our faith in. We have a, a solid, firm, historical event in time that, that is demonstration enough to us that every word that you have spoken ever can be depended upon, is reliable, is true. Lord, help us to, to be convinced of that this morning. I pray for every person in here who, who came in with sort of a shaky, uncertain type of, of a belief in you, or, or those who have had doubts. Lord, I pray that, that the, the power of your word and the presence of your spirit would dispel all the doubts from our mind and our hearts, that we would be able to, to, to boldly and with conviction and with assurance proclaim the things that we, that we believe, not just to the world, but to ourselves. Lord, thank you for the opportunity on Sunday morning to be reminded of these things. For some, this is, this is old news, and, and yet sometimes we need to be reminded of the things that we once learned. We need, to be, we need to be rehearsing these things and repeating these things to one another and to our children and to our grandchildren. We need to sharpen and, and hone our message so that we are best equipped to go and, and share it with the world. Because at the end of the day, Lord, that is what you're calling us to do, to, to take these accounts of the, of the first eyewitnesses and to take our own testimony of how their accounts have transformed our lives and proclaim them to our, our neighbors and to the people across town and to the people around the world, even to our enemies, Lord, the people who, who don't believe these things and people who commit all of their lives to undermine the things that we hold dear. Lord, may we love them in such a way that we would even tell them the good news because the good news is what brings life and transformation. It's what, it's what produces faith Faith that, that results in life that never ends. Lord, may we be a, a people who, who go and take the good news to the ends of the earth. What a fitting way to end this series and end this time in preparation for a time of missions conference. <laughs> Lord, th- this is why we do missions, to take these truths to the ends of the earth and to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Lord, may we be a church that is all about that in the days and weeks and years to come until you return or call us home. Lord, that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.